the the reference that Isaiah makes to Midian is talking about a time that's recorded for us in Judges chapter 5. So we go back to Judges chapter 5. It's the story of Gideon who, um, to, to avoid the oppression that the Midianites brought, he was thrashing out wheat on the wine floor. And the reason he was doing that that's, of course, that's not where you thresh wheat. You'd thresh wheat on the threshing floor, but he was threshing it on the wine floor because the, the Midianites kept attacking Israel at the time of harvest. They would come just as the harvest was ripe, and they would steal the harvest and take it for themselves, and the Israelites were left destitute. It's a picture of oppression that shows us that it is the pattern for all oppression, that the strong can take advantage of the weak. That whenever there is an advantage, it can be a, a military advantage, it can be a political advantage, it can be a difference uh, uh, in society that gives us a, an advantage because of race or because of, of economy, because of physical strength. Something that makes us able to take advantage of the weak. It allows for oppression to take place, and that's what was happening. The Midianites were strong, Israel was weak. God defines that part of the reason or all of the reason that they were weak was because they had left the true God and were worshiping idols. But uh, Gideon, in fear of the Midianites, was threshing the wheat on the wine floor. And a voice came to him while he was threshing wheat, and the voice said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And we could imagine what he would do in that case. He would look around. He would look for the voice that was speaking, but he would also look for the voice of who was being spoken to because he knew that in his condition, he was not acting like a mighty man of valor. He was fearful of the Midians. He was hiding from the Midians. But the Lord encouraged him. And then the story goes on that there were about 22,000 fighting men of Israel, and they were... Uh, equipped for battle and the Lord says that's too many you cannot go to battle with 22,000 or you will think you won the battle so he says to the people if you're afraid go home and so uh, most of them go home and they're left with about 10,000 and the Lord says to Gideon that's way too many you are still going to be proud if you win this battle or when this battle is won you will still think it is yours it is your victory. And he said, go to the river and get a drink. And of all the people that were drinking, only 300 uh, drank by, by putting their face in the water. And those were the 300 that God chose to, to go defeat the Midianites. And in the battle, they didn't even use their weapons, didn't use the military weapons. They used a pitcher and a lamp inside the pitcher. And we know that story. But God, through that, was demonstrating that he is the Savior and that in spite of the condition of the people, he would relieve them from their oppressor. And so Isaiah makes reference to that story, that that oppression was very severe, that we can imagine what that does. We can imagine what it does to the victim of oppression, that they feel like they are a second class, that they're not worthy or they're not deserving or none of those things are ever going to be theirs. The good things of life are never going to be theirs. And that's the same with the victims of oppression today. That they, the, the evil of that 
causes a separation in society, causes a separation in our hearts, so that as the victim, we, we begin to believe that. We begin to believe all the good things that I see other people enjoying, all the good relationships or the good things in their life, the good experiences they have, those are for others, but not for me. And so that, that sense of being really even dehumanized and devalued is, is, is the infection that comes from oppression. And God is promising that that's going to be over, that there is an end to that. He promises not that it will come through a military victory, but he's promising essentially that the freedom from oppression, that the end of war comes through a person. Because in the end of these verses, he says, for to us a child is born. So he doesn't say in the end of it, uh, the, the army is developed or the army is growing or, or anything like that. He's, he says a child is coming who will be the answer to the longings of my people. That promise of Messiah was the prominent thought of the scholars of Israel. We know that because as we go forward in time from Isaiah and we come to the time of the birth of Christ, we remember some very familiar stories. We remember that as the wise men came from the east to Herod and they said, where is the one who is born king of the Jews? Herod immediately consults the high priests and the scribes and he says, where, where does the Bible say, where does the, the prophecy say that the Messiah would be born? And they said, well, Bethlehem of Judea. So they, they knew the prophecies. They knew that they spoke of a person who would come, who would be the ruler in Israel. When Simeon speaks, Simeon, the old man who sees Jesus and Mary and Joseph at the temple, when they come for the dedication of, of Jesus at his, at his birth, when he's probably eight days old, I think, he, he came to the temple and Simeon holds him up and he says these words, <clears throat> Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Simeon was described as a righteous man who waited for the consolation of Israel. The thought of a coming Messiah was clearly the longing of the hearts of the people in the time of Christ. Jesus declares with perfect clarity that he is indeed the Messiah. When in Luke chapter 4, he is handed the scroll in the synagogue in Nazareth, he, he reads from the scroll in, of Isaiah. He reads from, um, the, from chapter 61 in our Bibles. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue, all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, 
Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus declared by his words at the very beginning of his ministry that he is the Messiah. And then he, he went on to live out the embodiment of the Messiah, the reliever of the oppressed. He did that in many ways. We remember the stories. The Samaritan woman at the well, oppressed by her isolation from society, by being discarded by five husbands, by being devalued by the culture that she she didn't even come to the well at the time when most people came to the well she she came alone and she probably was alone in many ways in her life but Jesus said to her I'm going to give you living water so that you're not a needy person who's always thirsty but you will be actually one out of whom flows rivers of living water you are going to be filled with an overabundance of a message that is refreshing, that quenches the thirst of the people. He said that to, in a similar way, um, relieved the oppression of a crippled man at Bethesda's pool that was there for eight years. If you can imagine coming to that pool for eight years, day after day, waiting for an opportunity to be healed. The There was a leper who met him in Matthew chapter 8. A leper lived an isolated life, isolated from society, from their family. They had to go around ringing a bell and announcing that they were unclean so that no one would touch them. You can imagine what a father would would do if he could not hold his children. He could not be with his family. He was isolated. And yet Jesus touched the leper and said, be clean, and he healed him. There was a woman who came to Jesus whose daughter had a demon and he asked that he, she asked that he would have compassion on her. This is the woman, the Canaanite woman. It's a story we're familiar with that, that at first he says, no, I've only come to the, the lost sheep of Israel. And then she says, yes, but even the dogs eat of the crumbs that fall from the table after he had said I'm not going to take the children's food and give it to the dogs. And she responded with, with a, a faithful comment that God was able to heal her daughter, and he did. Relieving the oppression of a demon in, in that young girl's life. There was a thief that died beside Jesus who was guilty of his sin, did not even deny that. And yet Jesus relieved the oppression of the guilt that he bore even to his death, even to his, his moments of his death. Jesus, instead of an eternity separated from God, Jesus relieved the oppression of his guilt and the effect of the grave by saying, today you will be with me in paradise. So he lived out those promises of being the one that would relieve oppression And yet, even today, as those who are redeemed by him and who walk in the light of his word and know that he has claimed us for his own, there are unmet longings in our life as well. There are unmet longings in this world that lives in the time of grace, in the time of the revealed Christ, of Messiah, having come 
and paying for our sins, living his life and, and performing his miracles of ministry, yet we live with longings. Those longings are manifest in, in times when we stand beside the grave of a loved one, one maybe who has died in our mind very prematurely. Or even if not, even if they've lived a full life, we are still met with the questions that come about the loss that we feel and why, why we will never again embrace that person in this life and the pain that's there even if our parent or our loved one is, has lived a full life, it still hurts. And we long for a kingdom and for a condition where that will not be what happens to us all. It's confessed to even by the world even by those who, um, who rule this world. It's confessed to uh, on the wall outside of the United Nations building. The wall outside the United Nations has a graven phrase in it, um, in the rocks of that wall, that come directly from this same book, from the book of Isaiah. And it it says, And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. That's the focus, that's the thought behind the United Nations. That it was for the purpose of ending war. I think that that plaque was placed there in the 40s, which is about three decades after a declaration made by President Woodrow Wilson during World War I that he named it World War I, the war to end all wars. Of course, that is the longing of humanity. War is devastating. How many have wept because the the young soldier did not return home? How many of us worry about that for our loved ones who are in the military now? How many of us wonder and muse over why this is our solution as humanity for handling conflict that we decide that the best way to do that, the best way to settle geographic disputes or other disputes is to go to war? We long for a prince of peace who will come and rule and reign in perfect, in a a complete rule over this world, who will end all that is bad and, and usher in an eternal kingdom that will not have oppression, will not have death, will not have war. He he gives a glimpse of that and we should be a glimpse of that as we have professed and we do profess that he reigns in us so there should be a dramatic difference in our behavior versus what we used to be and maybe what many people around us are instead of being oppressors for example what we studied in Romans recently in Romans chapter 15 
about the strong and the weak and the relationship that is supposed to happen between them instead of the strong taking advantage of the weak in an oppressive way, Paul said to us and to the Romans, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. That's just one of, of hundreds of commands or counsel in the Scripture that tell us how we should be different from the world that's around us, how we should reflect that there's a king reigning in our lives and in our heart that is different than the king that reigns in this world, than the prince of this world. And so we are to reflect that, but we still long for what is coming so that in this season, we celebrate. We say, joy to the world, the Lord is come. But in the same song, we, we anticipate his coming again. Because in that coming, then he will indeed be the one who reigns in, in truth and righteousness. He rules the world in truth and righteousness. I... I love the connection that poets make with us. And I love how they have been given the gift by God to be eloquent in expressing sometimes what is the longing of our heart. And I remember this from my, my youth. Um, this, this poem I, I heard one time by uh, a preacher who preached probably every Christmas day at the church I attended as a young man. That night, when in Judean skies the mystic star dispensed its light, a blind man stirred him in his sleep and dreamed he had sight. That night, when shepherds heard the song of host angelic hovering near, a deaf man stirred in slumber spell and dreamed him he could hear. That night, when in the cattle stall slept child and mother cheek by jowl, a cripple turned his twisted limbs and dreamed him he was whole. That night when o'er the newborn babe the tender Mary rose to lean, a loathsome leopard smiled in sleep and dreamed that he was clean. That night when to his mother's breast the little king was held secure, a harlot slept a happy sleep and dreamed that she was pure. That night when in the manger lay the sanctified who came to save, a man moved in the sleep of death and dreamed there was no grave. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have come to be the reliever of the oppressed. We thank you that you have come to be the, the prince of peace, to end all wars. We thank you that you are the conqueror who has defeated our arch enemy and that in our battle and in our shame and in our oppression under the guilt and weight of our own sin that you have relieved that oppression. Lord, we ask now that that we will anticipate and live in anticipation of the coming that, that you have promised when you will reign completely, that every heart, every 
every one will bow before you that not only those who who know you now but all will be submitted to your reign and to your rule that this world will indeed be what you intended it to be come thou long expected Jesus we we ask it in your name amen